This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 28. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right. Thanks, Chuck. And thanks, Cliff. You are listening to the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome back to all of our previous listeners. We're on session 28 today, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. I'll cut to the chase. I've got somebody great on today that I'm really excited to uh, have you listen to. Mr. John Congleton, Grammy-winning producer, engineer, mixer, writer. John lives in Dallas. Many people know him from his band, The Paper Chase. I'm staring at his production work, which is, oh my God, I could I could spend the entire rest of the podcast reading all these people. I'll just read a few of them. St. Vincent. Uh, Modest Mouse, Franz Ferdinand, Nelly Furtado, Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah, Smog, Lower Dens, The Polyphonic Spree. This just keeps going. He's worked with Marilyn Manson, The New Pornographers, Dismemberment Plan, Rogue Wave. This guy is busy. So he produces, engineers, mixes, composes, does some stuff for film. He's an artist in his own in his own bands. He does have a new project called uh, Nighty Night, the Nighty Night. And um, so, uh, John Congleton coming up here. And if I recall correctly, uh, John was a recommendation on Twitter from one of our listeners. So, you know, the beauty of the internet is you get a name, uh, whether you're familiar with them or not. You you can do a little research on them, figure out who they are, and if you think they'd be a good fit, for, or if I think they'd be a good fit for the show. And then, of course, you can uh, reach out to them directly. I think there's only one one person, and I won't name that person, uh, that I've reached out to that hasn't uh, responded. Mo- mo- everybody, it, like I say, with the exception of one person, has responded to my request to come on the show. So it's been great. I hope, I guess maybe the show is, you know, making the rounds and speaking for itself. And, of course, it helps to have some strong names on here like Tim Palmer and Andrew Sheps and Vance Powell and and Ross Hogarth. Those those are names that really kind of make the ears go up of, of the more high-profile people. Um, and it also uh, makes the people who are more, you know, not as popular but still as viable and uh, talented, uh, makes them go, ooh, I, I, I'd like to come on there as well. But uh, I don't know if I can handle it. But uh, I tell you, John holds his own. And uh, man, he's a badass. He does he does some cool work, and uh, he's a nice guy to boot. So I'm excited to have him on the show. Hey, I don't know if you remember, back several months, I mentioned some uh, software by a company called SonarWorks, and they do uh, some room calibration software for you know speaker calibration. And I said I was going to give it a, a try. There's a free trial, and I said all I had to do was hook up with Scott Evans and borrow his uh, calibration mic. And I managed to do that. And I've had those mics now for a little bit uh, sitting in my backpack here next to me. And I've just returned from a, a little bit of traveling. So now that the traveling is is done, I can focus and uh, take the time to sit and do some tests and uh, give this software a run for its money. So uh, I, I know many of you are thinking, all right, yeah, he said he was going to do that several months ago, but... Yeah, took me a while to get to it, but anyways, I'm I'm back on it. I'm gonna I'm gonna get to it for you, and I'll I'll give you. Um, I don't know. It's not gonna be like a super duper proper review. I'm just gonna tell you what I think, and if I feel it helps my uh, my mixing here at uh, in my mix room. So there you go. I hope all of you are doing well. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for tuning in, and thanks to our friends around the world listening. Of course. Um, Shout outs to uh, our friends uh, listening in, uh, looks like we have friends in Kazakhstan listening. I think there are three of you, but at least you're listening. Uh, there's friends in Belarus and Iceland and Peru, Portugal and Egypt and Croatia and Finland, Tunisia, Luxembourg, Latvia, man, all over the world, South Africa, the Ukraine, Spain, Greece. Whew, tell you, it's amazing. And of course, uh, there's always the big ones uh, that that listen quite a bit. All of our friends here, right here in the United States. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, I'll stop talking. Let's just talk to John Congleton and get down to it. All right, John Congleton here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hello, John. 
Hey, can you see me? I can see you. Can you see me? Yep, all good. We meet. Yeah, I'm really <laughs> sorry that this was so hard to get oh, going. Oh, dude, no, no worries. I know you're busy. I'm busy. You got a life. I got a life. We make it work. <laughs> yep. Not a problem. Welcome to the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for taking the time to speak to me today. And uh, it's hard to know where to start with you because you really, I was, I've read a few articles about you. I've watched a couple uh, videos with you in them. And all I could think of was, wow, this guy is busy. Is all, <laughs> that, that was the takeaway. Is that, is that true? Yeah, that's, I'm busy. That's, that's good. <laughs> it's a good position to be in. From what I understand, your career kind of started with you playing many roles. Uh, the artist, of course, in being the front man of the paper chase, but also producing and recording those records kind of out of necessity financially. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I get asked that a lot, like kind of like if that was like, you know, like something like I just wanted to be in control of it. And it never was really like that. It was just sort of a tactical thing where it was just like, you know, we only had so much time allotted to us and money and whatnot. And we would just kind of like work on those records whenever we all had time. We never really like buckled down and worked on a record for a period of time. So if we had done that, maybe we would have hired somebody to help and that would have been awesome looking back on it. It's my understanding that you hadn't really delved too deep into the world of recording from on a professional level. Is that correct? No, that's not correct. Okay. Um, I was recording bands and essentially making a living as an engineer before I even started the paper chase. The band actually sort of started by accident. I had some songs that I wanted to record and I had a couple friends uh, and I said, will you guys come in and just knock out these songs with me? And we did it. And then somebody wanted to put it out. So we're like, well, we better play some shows if somebody wants to put it out. And then somebody else wanted to put out something else. We're like, well, we should probably tour. And so it was sort of a band by accident, uh, so to speak. But I was, I was already well into recording bands at that time. I wasn't like, I certainly wasn't hyper successful monetarily speaking. And I was doing a lot of sort of, well, working class sort of audio things. This was back in the day when staff engineers still existed. This mm -hmm. is in the, the, the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, like that was, there was still the la like, like I was sort of the last helicopter off the Island, so to speak of that sort of world <laughs> of like making records on tape, kind of going in every morning and looking at the calendar like, Oh, okay. I'm recording. A, I'm recording a, a metal band circa 1985 or, Oh, I'm working with Barney the dinosaur or, Oh, I'm doing a jingle or, you know, that, that was sort of, I actually had that experience. Okay. So you'd gone to school and I, and I, to understand that eventually you, you left and this is in Dallas. Is this, is that right? Mm -hmm. And then you went to Chicago mm -hmm. and I'm just trying to assemble a timeline in my head uh, and to the audience. You, you went to, you, you were in school, you left, you went to Chicago and eventually you hooked up with Steve Albini. Mm -hmm. And then after Albini, then you were back in Dallas and you were That's working right. as a staff guy at this, this studio you're referring That's to. Right. Okay. Okay. So take me back uh, just a bit to w when you were much younger, when did, when did this recording bug really hit you? Really early on. I was 14. I was in a band. I mean, just a terrible high school band, really. Y you know, I mean, the, the, the normal thing you do is, is eventually you say, well, let's record this stuff. There was a band, a local band in town called Brutal Juice that I was a big fan of. They were on Alternative Tentacles at the time. And the bass player of that band was this guy named Sam McCall, who had a, a really modest eight-track studio. This is, you know, pre-ADAT, pre-Digital Revolution. Mm -hmm. And so we went in to record, and it was just one of these things where it was just, it, it all kind of like snapped into focus for me. It was like, oh, I really want to do this. It was like, I loved playing music. But I never harbored any sort of delusion of playing music professionally, just because I knew that ultimately I, I never could not do the kind of music exactly the way I wanted to. And I knew early on I could see that like you would have to compromise so many things in order to make music your career. For example, you'd have to play in wedding bands or whatever on the small scale, or you at the best case scenario, you would be playing for you'd be playing somebody else's music, you know, hmm. to, to basically pull a paycheck. And I knew that that wasn't going to be for me. 
but and so I hadn't necessarily harbored a delusion that I, I would make music my career until kind of that moment. And I went in and it was just it was just the light bulb went off. And this was I was really lucky to be that young and have something really connect with me. I just I, I walked out of there knowing that's what I wanted to do. And it's pretty much how it happened. So then you did go to college. Were you studying music or were you studying recording at this college? I didn't have any plans to go to college, but it was sort of the typical thing that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, where it was sort of like you graduate high school and I didn't have any plan except for I'm going to continue to play music in bands because I enjoy that. And uh, I'm going to try as hard as I can to record people whenever they would let me. At that point, I'd already recorded some bands semi-professionally, like meaning to say they bought me dinner, you know. I, literally, it was just the sort of thing that I think a lot of people go through, where it's like the day of my graduation, my father sat me down and was like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, uh, you should go to college. And it was it really, honestly, it was sort of like he just kind of leaned on me. It's like, you need, you, need, um, you need to do something. So it was a little bit of pressure, I suppose, but I, I thought, well, what's the harm in, in going for music? Because that's something I'm interested in, and maybe that'll make me a better engineer or make me a, more, a, more, um, a better communicator musically. Mm-hmm. You know, That's one thing I actually say, not to get tangential, one thing I say to a lot of people is, if you can have a wide palette of how to communicate with different types of musicians, that's really valuable. For example, like if you on Monday you record uh, a punk rock band and you can communicate with that punk rock band that knows nothing about music or knows nothing about theory. Uh, if you can communicate with them on whatever level they need so you can get an, a, a satisfactory recording out of them, and then on Tuesday record an orchestra and the conductor hands you the sheet music and you can follow along and read it, that's really valuable in my opinion. Like mm-hmm. basically having a huge palette of how to communicate with people. So that was sort of the best thing I got out of school was I learned how to communicate intellectually, musically with just about anybody. But I, I, did, I did not get a degree. I dropped out after two years. No judgment here. No. <laughs> Don't be afraid to quit. It's okay to be a quitter on some things. It really is, actually. <laughs> what got you to get on an airplane and go to Chicago? I didn't have any recording heroes I didn't think about being a producer. Like I didn't, that hadn't even occurred to me to be a producer. I just wanted to record bands. And if you're just really interested in the science of recording and you really like punk rock, it's you immediately gravitate to somebody like Steve Albini, who still to this day is the one of the best living rock engineers ever. His ability to capture Raw sounds are still kind of unmatched by most people, in my estimation. So this is pre-internet, and this I literally just I wrote him a letter. That's all I did was I wrote him a letter, and I said, I'm a big fan. I'm hungry to learn. Uh, I've always wanted to live in Chicago. If, if, uh, if you ever needed help, like intern sort of situation, um, I would love to be considered. And... To be honest, my time that I spent around there was very minimal, all things considered. But this sort of interaction with Steve and talking to him and having this this grown man talk to a 20-year-old seriously about wanting to make recording in his life was, was extremely validating to me. He didn't make me feel silly for wanting to do this, which is sort of what I thought he would do. He took everything that I had to say about wanting to record very seriously, and it wasn't like, hey, get out of here, kid. You bother me. He, he spoke to me like an equal. So I will always be grateful for him because he made me feel like it was something I really could do. And going to Electrical and seeing this place he built, this is before Studio A was, was finished, uh, just seeing what somebody with some industrious tendencies and hard work could do, it was super inspiring to me. So I spent some time in Chicago uh, there and around and made some friends. And and basically, I was sort of forced with the conclusion that either I stay in Chicago and try to live there, which was more expensive than Texas, and essentially compete with other great engineers that were in Chicago. Or I could move back to Dallas, where it was cheaper, start a band, which is what I wanted to ultimately do, be in a band, and try to record in a place that was more affordable to live in. Dallas is not any more affordable than Chicago now, but at the time it was. 
So I came back and Steve very graciously gave me his recommendation. Uh, he wrote like a, a letter of recommendation. And with that, I got, um, I got a job at the largest studio in Texas, a place called Sound, the Sound Lab. It's no longer operating, but it was a five-room facility. And, and that was it. I was sort of off to the races professionally at that point where I was just, I would come in and I would work on whatever I had to do that day. And it would be an enormous spectrum of stuff. Like I said, it would be a jingle or it'd be Barney the Dinosaur. I did so much Barney the Dinosaur, you have no idea. Or it would be a band, you know, it could be, it could be anything. But really what it did was it, it made me hone my my chops as an engineer. And, and, you know, that's how I became a real engineer. I certainly don't want to make this interview about Steve Albini because it's not, you're the focus of the attention here. But I have to say, uh, in my minimal exposure to Albini, in spite of what rumors and whatever people, random people say, I was, I walked away from him and I thought, I get the feeling this is one of the most professional people I will meet in my time. And although I disagree with him vehemently on many insignificant things, I just thought, I think this guy's heart is in the right place. And I think he's a good person who treats bands fairly. I couldn't possibly agree more. I mean, he was a huge idol to me in the early days. But I mean, like with all things, you have to kill your idols and find your own way of doing things. Obviously, my career as an engineer was not spectacular until... I started to be hired to produce, and then that's when my career essentially took off. At some, at some point in my life, I had to take it in my heart that that's what I was bound to do, was to be somebody that helped bands on a much larger variety than just helping them get a bitching guitar sound. At the end of the day, Steve is a master at that, and uh, the bands that work with him want that from him, and he's incredibly professional. I agree with that, that assessment very much so. The things that I disagree with with Steve of, are really of no importance because at the end of the day he's still um, he's still incredibly good at what he does and the things I disagree with him aren't particularly important you know I, it's it's and, and the things that he disagrees with me it's those sorts of things I'm sure are, aren't aren't ever even worth talking about when we see each other what was the let's just shoot straight to it what was the jumping off point that you said, holy shit, I think my life's going to change for the better because of some project you did. And what was that project? A lot of these things you can't see at the time. I look back on it and now I can see how things went. As I said, I was just basically recording people, keeping my mouth shut, not saying much of anything. There was a Chicago band <clears throat> called the 90 Day Men that I did a record for. It was one of the, they asked me to produce them. And uh, I did a record, and this is probably a record that at the, I mean, probably sold 5,000 copies. This is back in, back when you, when selling records was easier, but you know, so 5,000 copies, not a lot of copies, but the thing is, is everyone who bought that record was in a band essentially. And it was a, you know, it was a band favorite. And one of those bands that heard that record was a band called Explosions in the Sky. And they called me and I did their record. I did their record in three days, recorded and mixed and that record went on to sell multiple six figures. So that was, looking back on it, I can see that that's when the phone started to ring for people that wanted to work specifically with me because of records they had heard. And that was sort of when it started to get going. That was about the age of 25. And that's, that's sort of, you know, whenever I was like, okay, I'm a producer. You know, this is, this is what I do. I don't, I don't just sit there and, and record things. There's more that I more than I can do. So I came to being a producer from extremely honest means. You know, everybody. There's so many people that think that they're a producer. There's so many people that think that they can come in the room and tell people what to do. And that is exactly not what a producer does. A producer is somebody who's constantly taking the temperature of the room and trying to figure out how you can be the best vehicle for a vision. It's not about you. If you're a frustrated artist, then you're going to be fucked. You're, you're, never, you're never going to be a successful producer, or you're not going to be a producer with staying power. Ultimately, it's about understanding what that artist or that band is about and getting it there as quickly, efficiently, and as successfully as possible. And, and I found out that I was okay at doing that. That's digging in deep to a band's psyche, to a band's... Um to really truly understanding what's under the hood, so to speak, with a band. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you do to 
to do that given, say, time constraints and the inability to really get to know a band? Uh, it doesn't even, you don't even need a lot of time. I do records as quickly as I possibly am allowed to do them um, because I think that second guessing and hand wringing is usually the beast. That's sort of what keeps things from being something visceral and honest. I, that was going off onto another subject, but to answer your question very simply, it's just about a conversation. Making records is just a conversation. You're constantly talking to the band. You're constantly asking questions. They're constantly telling you things. And because what you develop is what I like to think of as a shorthand. You, you come up with sort of a, a legend or, or, or um, an algorithm, so to speak, of, of what it is that you're trying to do. So you don't have, eventually you just kind of start to know, oh, they won't like that. Or, oh, they will like that because they've told me X, Y, and Z, because they told me they like these kinds of records, because they tell me that they like this sort of thing and not that sort of thing. So you just constantly are talking. And usually in with the process of that, you become pretty good friends. Mm -hmm. Do you, when, when it comes to working with bands, if, if I'm in a band and I come to you and I say, John, I really want to do this album all analog, no Pro Tools, no computer, does that matter in the bigger picture, do you, I mean, because I always look at that and I always second guess it and think, would you go to somebody who, and ask them to build a house and only use a hammer and nails when they are right. perfectly accustomed to using their nail gun? Well, the first thing I would do is I'd want to know why they want to do it that way. Not because I'm resistant and I'm happy to do it. And I do records like that all the time. I would want to know why first, if it's because of some sort of superstitious nonsense of that it's going to sound warmer or fatter, then I will probably go ahead and try to shoot that down right away and say, uh, if you want to make tape because you, you, you think that that's the best way to archive your artistic performance or because you want the limitations of tape, fucking A, that's awesome. Let's do it. Um, but I really try to minimize the superstitious nonsense of like that, that tape. It's um, realer. I think that's a bunch of fucking horseshit. The funny thing that you get into people when you start to talk to them about analog is all the things that they associate with analog, like warmth and fatness and all that shit, is all the things that you, that are, the, the, the sound of analog tape is really, they're describing the sound of using tape wrong. <laughs> you know, like they're, they're talking about, oh, I love, I love hitting the tape hard because it's saturated. I, 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 they like the sound of, you know, machines that aren't biased well or whatever, you know. Uh, it, I find it really funny that um, the people that say they want to use tape is because they, they're talking about purism. And really, it's like the things that everybody's in love with are the things when you use tape wrong, which um, is fine with me. I mean, I like that sound too, you know? I love the sound of of uh, tape being hit hard and things like that, but I, I find it very comedic that a lot of people will say that sort of in the same breath. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, but my, my point is, is, that, is, is try to develop the shorthand. Okay, you want to use tape because why? Okay, you want to use Pro Tools because why? What is the superstition that you might be harboring that makes you think that that's the way to do the record? And is that the smartest way? But if somebody wants to use tape and they don't, and for no good reason, they, they want to use tape, well, what do I care? I'm, I'm cool to make records on tape, you know? Like, I, I like the way it sounds. You can, make a, you can make a great record either way. You can also make a really dark, terrible sounding record on tape if you use it wrong. You can also use or make a really brittle, terrible record on digital if you use it wrong, you know? It's mm -hmm. just knowing how to, it's, it's knowing how to do your job. I mean, that's all there is to it. It's just, it's a different tool set. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've never, I've tried really hard never to be at the mercy of a medium of anything. I try to, I don't walk into a studio and go, oh, if I had this, I could make a great record. That's ridiculous. Like whatever you got, you can make it happen. I mean, if you, if somebody told me I had to make a record on blackface ADATs tomorrow, I, I mean, I could do it and I'm pretty sure I could make a good record. It would probably be a little bit of a bummer. But I would never even mention it to the artist that that was the, a bummer because it's not important to them. Exactly. Trying to keep that technology in, as invisible as possible. And Absolutely. So the phone starts ringing after Explosions in the Sky. Would you say that that was a fluke? Meaning that you did this band at the time you probably couldn't see why it was so cool. 
I knew exactly why it was cool and I knew it was great. The only reason why that record was great is because the songs are great. I really had nothing to do with the greatness in my estimation. The band might disagree. Other people might disagree. But if you ask me, it was a fluke for me. I got lucky. I happened to be there. I happened to be the guy who recorded that record. And I think maybe what people respond to, what the band responded to is, is I knew it was fantastic. And I did not want to mess with it. And I just kept telling the band, this is great. Don't mess with it. Don't mess with it. This is great. Maybe that's what people responded to. But I'm giving myself a lot of credit to say that I got lucky with that record. I really did. And maybe later on, I went on to do things where I it wasn't that I was lucky. I really did something very good. But for that record, I got lucky. Let's transition now. I mean, you, you the phone starts to ring. Eventually, did you get a manager? I got I got a manager right around the time I did that record. His name was Eric Eager, and I worked with him for three or four years uh, before moving on to a guy named Adam Katz, who still manages me to this day. And Eric is a wonderful guy. I have no problem with him. And Eric has gone on to have an enormously successful career uh, managing producers. Curious because I always associate, I don't know, successful producer engineers as living in Nashville, New Mm -hmm. York, LA, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. kind of the bigger, the bigger obvious usual suspect Mm -hmm. choices. You betcha. So with regards to management, did you hunt it out, hunt it down or did it hunt you down? I met the, the original manager I had, um, Eric, I met him in New York Uh, through a mutual friend. He had heard a couple records I had done, very small records, and just believed in what I was doing and and decided to take me on as a mission of mercy. And it was very slow going for him and I, and he really hung in there with me for a long time, but it was very slow. And I still thank him to this day for hanging in there with me that long. So today, the way it operates is does most of your work come through your current manager, Adam? No work comes from management. If anybody ever says that, they're full of shit. Um, it, my manager will admit that. You got to do a lot of good records and you got to not piss people off if you want to continue to work. <laughs> and your manager, what your manager can do is he can be plugged into the pipeline of people where the conversations can happen a little easier. If, if there's somebody that I really want to work with, I'll mention it to Adam and Adam always knows the person that they're associated with and it'll kind of end up in that pipeline. And then that, if that person likes the idea of working with me, then it kind of comes back through the pipeline and that's how a lot of things end up happening. Adam is helpful in so many ways. He's helpful, first of all, just in the tactical, almost clerical secretary type way, you know, like he'd probably kick my ass for saying that, but he keeps my shit in line in a pretty incredible way. Like there are multiple times I have no idea what I'm doing, but Adam knows what I'm doing on a certain day. And then Adam is great. And just sort of like giving advice as to, you know, maybe when I should take some time off or what kind of record I should do as far as like, sometimes I'm just like, I don't know what, what to work on next. Cause I'm always like, I like to, um, to keep, I like, as you notice, I like to change it up. I don't like to work on the same kind of thing. Yes, you do. It's very <laughs> impressive. I, it, thank you. Uh, I, I like to, that keeps me inspired. Um, it makes me not get lazy and it, it's a challenge. I mean, that's the best thing is constantly challenge yourself. And Adam always really has a lot of smart things to say about that. Like, Hey, you should listen to this band or, uh, when a band writes, he, he usually says, okay, pay special attention to this band. This is really good. And we, our tastes are usually rather simpatico with those sorts of things. Shift focus now to your studio. Uh, your studio's in Dallas. Mm-hmm. You have a studio partner, right? I no longer have a studio partner. Ah, which has its pros and its cons, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, I started the studio. I started the studio with a gentleman named Stuart Sykes, who's a fantastic engineer. Um, he um, his big success was the big breakthrough White Stripes record. Uh, he also did a couple great Cat Power records. Lots of great shit. A, gra- a guy you should talk to someday, mm, honestly. Okay. Um, we started the studio together, and I think we had the studio together for about three years. He bought the building. I brought the gear. That was essentially how it worked. He just want- His wife got a job in Austin, and he decided that it was time for a change. So he just moved to Austin, so he's three hours away. And uh, he still will come up and use the studio, but essentially uh, it's me. He, I mean, he uses the studio maybe a couple times a year, 
but it's essentially just me up there now, do me you, and my assistant. Do you own the building? No, actually, I still just rent the building from Stuart. So that's a sympathetic landlord. Yeah, sympathetic landlord. There you go. Very much so. Yeah. It's not like he was in financial destitution when he left. He was fine with just keeping the building. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't want to move all my gear out of there. Because moving sucks. Oh, man. I got to, you know what? Can we just say for a second that when I have to move and when I have to build a new space, it's going to be, the, it's going to be a dark day. It's going to be so depressing <laughs> to move. Not, not because I, not, I mean, it will be exciting to move. But just the process of moving all that gear, oh, oh God. Yeah. It's pretty awful. I don't know if you've ever looked at my equipment list, but I have a lot of shit, and it will be awful. Yeah, you do have a lot. I've seen some pictures. I've seen some lists, and I'm like, oh, man, that's a lot yeah. of stuff. It's stupid dragging all that shit around. So little on the personal side, do you have a relationship, kids, anything like that in your life? No, I'm single. I was um, I was with one woman for a very long time uh, who was actually an intellectual property lawyer, so she understood the artistic temperament pretty well. We were together for a really long time, and she was always very supportive, and we're still very, very good friends. We're still best friends, actually. But I am actually single at the point now, and um, it's really hard working in this business, being single, like trying to meet somebody and cultivate any sort of relationship. That's that's hard as hell. You know, that's that's a... Uh... I guess a a line of questioning I've never gone down with anybody is is actually well, we can talk about it. Yeah, I mean, we both know that you you know you spend all that time in the studio and and there's a passion there and to break the the pattern of recording to go out and okay now I have to shift focus and I would like to find somebody to spend some time with <laughs> uh, can be quite a challenge, right? So. How do you, I mean, obviously, Adam, your manager, makes suggestions of taking time off, but, but I mean, you, you seem to be moving, and I, and I know this sounds like, you know, this sounds corny, but you're moving and shaking a, quite a bit. I mean, you really, you seem to be working on a lot of stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, in short, how do you handle it? Well, I'm a workaholic. Mm-hmm. That's That's sort of it's that's kind of a problem but um i'm uh, i'm much more disciplined about not being that way anymore uh i still work all the time because i like to work uh, i enjoy it but i also really love time off too so i've been i've been you know you got to find a balance and i am always constantly learning that balance you know mm-hmm. where i was originally going with that is um, with without uh, a significant other and kids and and the responsibilities that come with that that has a lot of bonuses because you're only responsible for yourself. Therefore, mm. financially, you mm. can take some risks that you may not otherwise yep. take if you had kids. That's uh, right. So, you know, without asking you too too deeply about, you know, personal finance, what's your do you have a, a philosophy about money? Uh, do you have a good or bad relationship with it and how does it work for you with regards to gear? Do you do you buy a lot of stuff and go? Oh, I shouldn't have bought that. That's no, no. I don't. I don't. I, I'm. I've always been pretty fiscally responsive, respon- responsible, mm-hmm. Ugh, responsive. I mean, the thing about gear is you. Uh, it is a tax write-off too. You know, you're constantly reinvesting, so it's not a bad idea to buy gear if you have the money. If you have money, of course. Don't overextend yourself and don't buy things on credit, of course. But if you only invest in good gear. You never really ever lose your money. You might it might diminish somewhat, but it sort of balances out because some things increase in value. Now, the exception to that, of course, is all digital technology like Pro Tools. You're just throwing your fucking money away when you buy Pro Tools, but you got to do it. You got to do it if you want to work in today's you know climate. So um, I only try to buy stuff that will maintain its value if I can help it. And the way I look at it too is if it keeps me inspired and it keeps me interested in what I'm doing and therefore I can make more money, then it's okay. But that being said, I I definitely know when it's time to stop buying things. Right now I have a pretty stern moratorium on buying anything at the moment. Not for any <laughs> financial reasons, just because I don't have any more fucking space. Yeah. Yeah, and every time you buy something, it's like, well, how am I going to fit that in on the patch bay? And 
Yeah. It's just I have so much stuff that I don't even have wired up. So I always, with regards to gear, this is always a, a battle for me. It's like, I've, and I've heard this, I've heard time and time again, people say, you know, if you make good, if you buy good gear, um, you buy good pieces, you don't lose money on them. But it, I, I've had the experience lately where I've, I've tried to sell. And well, what is good gear is, is obviously, you know, depending on who you talk to, they're yeah. going to have different opinions about that. Oh, yeah. So I always think about gear like, uh, you know, there's some gear I think that is economical and I think is very like, yeah, maybe I'm not going to get my money back out of that in the long run, but it may be a piece of gear that will do the job totally fine compared mm-hmm. to its more expensive mm-hmm. competition. So when you buy gear, what's it? What's your criteria for buying gear Uh well, first and foremost, the, the one thing is it has to do one thing really well. Mm. And if it does a lot of things pretty well, that's good too. But usually I look for something that is just spectacular at one thing. And then if I can use it for other things, that's great. I love cheap gear too. That's another thing. I love shitty gear. Like I'm a huge fan of of pedals. I'll run any – I'll run – anything through a $50 pedal if it sounds cool. I've got no problem with any of that sort of shit. I'm not a snob. You know, I, as long as it does something cool, I will use it. But there, there are certain pieces of gear that you buy that you can basically kind of rest assured you're not going to lose your money on. If you go buy um, an original U47 tube microphone, you're probably going to be able to resell it for the same thing you bought it for 10 years later or more. As long as you take care of it, mm-hmm. you know, so, I mean, there are just certain no brainers. Yeah. There are certain things that just, you know, you'll be fine. That's it's like, it's all, it's not as good as putting money in the bank, but it's pretty close. It seems like your studio, which is your personal studio is pretty critical in your day-to-day operation. Do you think you could operate as a freelance guy without it? It would be tough nowadays, mainly because there's just not very many studios left. Mm. Um, there's no other way for me to make records as affordable as I can there. So um, it would be tough in the fact that people would have to pay more to work with me. So that would be tough. And maybe ultimately that means I would make less. So maybe that would be a problem. I've had the studio for seven years. I've worked very consistently during that time. It's hard for me to know for sure, but I would, I, I would venture a guess that the studio has really helped a lot in that way. In Dallas... What's the studio climate like there? What's the ecosystem like? There used to be a lot. Now there's not so many. There's a handful of good ones, but, you know, just like everywhere. I mean, it's just the, the industry is shriveled here just like it has everywhere else. It would, be, it would be tough if I didn't have my studio just because for the simple reason of that, I wouldn't be able to make my gear work for me. I would just have all this shit and it wouldn't be... Um, it wouldn't be making me any money, you know? So that would be the biggest problem, honestly. Do a lot of bands come to Dallas to work with you? It's about 50-50. I, I mix, that's for recording. Uh, I mix almost every record I ever do there. Not There are some exceptions, um, but normally if it's a work uh, record I'm working on, I mix it there. And it obviously it helps that Dallas is kind of a, you know, has a good size airport, so it's a hub. I, you know, I'm, it's funny that you touch on that. I, I, I say this all the time, people, it is really valuable living here because I can get anywhere in America in three hours, uh, anywhere I can get to almost anywhere in the world in one plane flight. And if anybody who lives in like a place like, um, a place like Austin knows how irritating it is with how many layovers you have to have, if you have to travel all the time. I really don't get stuck with layovers and that is really valuable. I want to talk a little bit about a little bit of the old, old world way of doing records in terms of let's talk about points and being compensated uh, for productions. How do you operate in today's climate with where we're at? Do you do points or do you just get paid a flat fee? Um, 90% of the time I have a back end that I do. Rarely do I see any money from that very rare but it does happen there's all kinds of ways i charge i, I essentially 
Um, I mean, but I always end up basically charging the same amount. Um, I have a day rate, which means if you want me for a certain day to be there, whether I'm recording you or producing you, there's a rate that you just pay to have me for the day. And then there is a, um, there is a production fee on top of that, meaning to say if I'm producing your record, that's a different fee. Um, this is sort of the, the positive thing about being an engineer and a producer at the same time. Mm. So what I'm trying to say is like my production fee is usually a back-end fee that sometimes I'm paid uh, a front-end on, if that makes sense to your listeners. You might get that production fee up front, or you might see it on the back-end if they don't exactly. ha- have it. And the- it depends. It just depends uh, uh, how whatever the artists, like however that deal gets structured, it depends on a few different things. Now, you're also an artist, uh, and you have, there's a new thing, I think, Nighty Night. What's that all about? I mean, I'm also a songwriter. I, that's another thing that we haven't touched on at all is I do actually write <clears throat> songs for people and write with people. That's just another thing I do. Sometimes when I produce a record, I'm writing songs with the artist. Um, sometimes I'm just writing songs for people. It's just one more thing I do, essentially. But I also just write music for myself. And the music I write for myself is is very idiomatic of what I like to do. And it's very specific and it's not for, it's for a very small amount of people, frankly. It's satisfying to me and it's something that I need to do just because I'm an artist just like you probably are. A lot of the people that are listening, you know, you might record, but you're also an artist. It's two very different, distinct, delineated things to me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I will be putting out a record, a new record. I haven't put out a new record in many years, actually, but I will be putting out a new record in the first quarter of next year. I would love to talk more specifically about it, um, but I'm I'm sort of not at liberty to talk about who's putting it out. Although I can say that it's I'm quite happy with the situation. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of what's going on with that. Well, that's cool. So when you're writing with an artist, obviously it's that's potentially another income stream because you're yeah. contribute you're or you're actually uh, dipping into the publishing pool. That's right. Yeah. Now you also work on soundtracks as well. Is that right? Not too terribly much, but yes, I do. I have done some of it. It's not particularly something that I am attracted to doing. If it's a, if it's a project that I'm really interested in, or it's an artist I'm really interested in, then I'm into it. But for the most part, I'm not, I'm not the best to write for film because I'm, as I'm sure you know, or your listeners know, like it can be quite a demoralizing thing to work on something and then have somebody tell you to change it all. Mm-hmm. So I just try to avoid that. <laughs> yeah, like how about mixing? Like, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah mixing. Um, what keeps you going in this, man? I mean, what you 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 enjoy the process, but I the mean, grim fucking reaper, man. Knowing life is short, and and you want to do something that you find enjoyable. Yeah, man. It takes a lot out of you working in the music business, and it takes a lot uh, of struggle and bullshit but ultimately it's better than digging ditches (laughs) and at the end of the day you can look back and say i'm i made that or i helped make that or i uniquely made that different Mm -hmm. um that's super valuable to me um and also i mean it's like i said it's it's uh it's the illusion of meaning, you know, like, uh, like you creating something gives you the feeling that what you, what your life has purpose, you know, and it's, that's an illusion of course, but it's the illusion of meaning that keeps me going. I don't mean to get super deep on you. No, but, I mean, no, I hear you. Ultimately that's, that's what it's all about. I, I, if I don't look back on my day and feel like I made something, I get depressed. It's just as simple as that. If I had a data entry job, <clears throat> that would be very depressing to me because I wouldn't know what I did all day. I want to conclude with a couple couple things. First of all, on the on the data entry thing, <laughs> let's talk about data entry for a second, John. <laughs> no, um, one of the listeners on the podcast, and it directly ties into what you're saying, and I thought about him when you said that. So if you'll just <laughs> bear with me, let me just pull yeah, up uh, the Facebook page and look at this guy's message. I'll read this to you, and I want to get your take on this. Okay. Uh, so this guy uh, looks like his name is, uh, I don't know how he says it, but it looks like Theo, T-H-E-O. And uh, he basically says, uh, hey, Matt, it's Theo from Berlin, Germany, sending some greetings to you and your family. I cannot describe how great the podcast is. 
Due to my day job, I have to spend hours of driving and keep listening to your podcast over and over again. It's time worth spending and I always like hanging with friends. What are your thoughts to some of these folks that are up and coming that really want to be doing what we do full time and want to transition out of it? Do you, you have any thoughts about that? Well, I would first say they might be looking at it the wrong way. Like I would take that sort of conundrum or whatever and turn it on its side and look at it a different way and say that making good art or making art is always its own reward. And the moment you start to expect that music or art should give you something, you're fucked and you're done. So you should always just do it because it's satisfying to you. And if you do that, then you'll everything will kind of just take care of itself. If you're good and you work hard and you're tenacious, maybe it can transcend beyond just being a part-time thing or a hobby or whatever. But ultimately, just do it because you love it. Don't expect anything of it. Otherwise, it'll grow teeth and bear fangs and turn on you and it'll get really ugly, I think. That's easy for me to say for somebody who's kind of already gotten over sort of the hump and sort of is doing it professionally. But... um I never really ever expected much from it except that I loved it. I, I'd probably still be recording just as a hobby if it had never taken off for me and, and doing something else because it just ultimately it's satisfying to me. So to sort of just relish the fact that you're satisfied by doing it and that it's fun. A lot of people take photographs as a hobby. Um, some of those people become professional photographers. A lot of people don't. But the ones who don't hopefully still just enjoy taking photos. That would kind of just be my advice is, is don't don't get obsessed with making a plan. Just enjoy your fucking days on this earth and, and um, you know, try to have a little fucking fun and do something satisfying. And if it's if the stars align, they align. But don't be angry if they don't. Would you say and I'm going to bring this back around to our uh, to Albini. I mean, you are a incredibly talented and creative guy. I. I know that. And I'm not saying Albini's not talented or creative, but he definitely takes a very different approach. Uh, in fact, a, a very working class approach. He he goes to work, he records, yeah. yeah, he has a particular way of operating, and he seems to make a pretty damn good living. Yeah. Some are more uh, creative and talented than others. And some are some are born to do it Albini's how Albini does it, and some are born to do it how you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's more of a statement. It's like, and just kind of analyzing the situation. You know, we're not all the same uh, recording engineers, producers, mixers, musicians. We all can, we all have different strengths. I think that I would just add to that that like I don't particularly think talent is rare. Something that you don't hear very often. A lot of people are like, oh, you're so talented. Oh, this person's so talented. I just don't think that talent is rare. I think that it's it's sort of just everywhere. Talent with industriousness mm. is rare. Okay. <laughs> people people that know how to use that talent is rare. I, you know, I mean, there are plenty of people that um, that I envy their talent because it seems very alien to me. I don't think I could ever. For example, this is going to sound dopey and pandering, but I don't think I could ever run a podcast. I don't think I could do that effectively. I don't think I can so. either. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing just fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there are plenty of things that I'm like, wow, I don't know how people do that. You know, like, um, but I don't think it's rare. I think that there's people out there that I think talent is, you can throw a rock and hit somebody with talent. Um but it's it is at the end of the day, it is about being industrious and sort of knowing how to use that talent and knowing what your skill set is and knowing where your boundaries are. That's that's really a great way to sum this whole thing up. We all mm-hmm. have different talents, and how you harness it and how you take advantage of it mm-hmm. is really up, up to you. I agree. Well, cool. On that note, I think that uh, I will say that we have had a a wonderful interview here. And I, <laughs> I I really appreciate you being on the show. I think people will really enjoy what you have to say. And um, well, can I just say that I'm really glad that we didn't talk about microphones for an hour? You know, I, I can't tell you how many people tell me that. Well, I think the podcast is a great idea. Like I said, I like the fact that it's not too geeky and that it's just about, you know, making your life about music. I like that. 
Well, cool, man. I know you're busy and, and, uh, thank you again for being on the podcast and I'll send this over to you and, uh, have a, have a good one, man. All right, man. You too. I'll, I'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Wow. There it is again. I bring it to you and these people just pipe up and give us amazing information. And, uh, John is no different. So, uh, special thanks to John for, for doing that. I really appreciate it, John. Um, and I hope you listeners, I hope you enjoyed that fantastic, uh, information. I, that I hope you get something out of these interviews. I I know that there's tidbits that some of you may be listening to and thinking if you've heard enough of these, you start to pick up on a pattern. Um, and I hope it doesn't get boring for you. So we'll try to keep it fresh. So that's it for us today here at Working Class Audio. I uh, will, of course, be talking to you next week. Same thing, Mondays. We try to make Mondays good here. I know Mondays can be a drag, but spread the word about Working Class Audio, whether you're a student, oh, an old grouchy recording engineer who doesn't want to use a computer, and uh, whoever you are, spread the word. Love to have you here and uh, appreciate the uh, feedback out there in social media. And uh, yeah, can't say enough about that. Amazing. All right. I'll stop talking once again and uh, have a great day. Thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.